Hello, my name is Michael McLennan, and welcome to COVID Matters, the podcast produced by COVIDAID. As part of our live Q&A series, COVIDAID partnered up with Parents United to co-host an event with Dr. Benara Talibani, MBE. She's a hospital doctor in kidney and transplant medicine, an immunology scientist, and has been a Team Halo guide. Team Halo are a group of scientists and healthcare professionals from around the world, working to end the pandemic by volunteering their time to address COVID-19 vaccine concerns and misinformation. They've been doing amazing work, and it's great to hear more about how Benara got involved, and for her to then answer a variety of questions that people have, which she did with a wonderful clarity. I hope you enjoy our chat, and I'll be back afterwards with more details about both Team Halo and covid To begin with, it would be great to find out a bit more about yourself and how you came to be involved in Team Halo. Uh, yes, yeah, so uh, my colleagues and I, uh, in, so I'm based in Cardiff, I'm a doctor uh, training to be a kidney and transplant specialist and currently doing my PhD in immunology with a view to doing uh, both research and uh, clinical work long term and, and marrying the two up together uh, to, to be a clinician scientist. So um, in January, we noticed there was a lot of hesitancy around the COVID vaccines just among people that we knew. Um, you know, these are people who uh, would often have their medications and any other vaccines without any hesitation, but were, were particularly hesitant about this vaccine. Um, and we opted to do something about it and got together to form a group called MDC and have made lots of different content and social media, um, really targeting ethnic minority groups to make uh, different, essentially different content webinar in different languages. That was the key, different languages. Um, and that work really took off and we've we've continued that and have and now expanded to do lots of other things like mental health and other different campaigns. Um, around April, I was invited to join Team Halo, which is essentially the same thing, but on a global scale. Um, and there are people like myself, Team Halo guides, who volunteer our time to create social media content. Um, and we are nurses, doctors, scientists, uh, psychologists from different disciplines, different specialties. Um, and that's what we've been doing for the past um, coming up to a year and a half now. And why do you think the work of Team Halo is so important? So I think that because the the majority of the uh, nonsense, the misinformation, disinformation being shared is actually being shared on social media itself. So it, it makes sense that we use social media to share accurate information, evidence-based information. Um, and I think the reason Team Halo itself is really important is because not only is it beneficial for people to be able to access that content, but somebody who um, somebody like myself who hasn't been on the wards looking after COVID patients, for example, but who has um, the knowledge to understand the immunology, the science behind the COVID vaccines, if there's a question about managing COVID, when someone asks me that and I don't know the answer, I can tap into that resource with my other Team Halo colleagues who are experts who've, who bring those different expertise from their backgrounds. Um, and it's been a great source of support for me when I've been targeted, like we all have with some anti-vaxxer abuse and things. So um, it's a great, it's a really great movement and it's a privilege to be a part of it. And actually, I think moving forward, I think we should normalize professionals being on social media, sharing expertise, advice and just evidence, teaching people the difference between scientifically backed information and just not <laughs> the, the one that lacks evidence and that people try to sh- share on social media. Yeah, it seems like a really collaborative process that's going on. So what would you say have been its biggest successes? 
I think the biggest success has been that we are a collective effort. We're we're a team, and we are sharing the same, essentially the same information because it's it's pretty much the same questions that keep coming up again and again and again. But we're making we're making different content. Um, sorry, making different ways to address that misinformation and that hesitancy. And the fact that we're all from different walks of life and speak different languages, I think is a lovely way to be able to address misinformation across the globe. There is still a lot of work to be done. Um, but last I checked, we've had something like 267 uh, million views. So this is, it's, it's great. And I think it needs to continue. And then on the other side, what do you think have been some of the biggest challenges that Team Halo has faced? Yeah, I think the biggest problem with missing disinformation is that you it's a bit of a monster. You cut off one head and three other heads appear. And, um, you know, I've, I've dealt with, you know, very sensible questions like, well, if the vaccines are produced so quickly, how do we know they're safe? I think that's a very sensible, legitimate concern um, that's actually easily addressable when you understand the process of how it, they were produced. But then there are other things like the vaccines. It, there have been ridiculous claims about um, vaccines increasing your chance of contracting HIV recently. And you just think, what? how, how did that even, <laughs> you know, um, it's just as you're trying to address one bit of nonsense that comes out, something else comes along and along. And it's um, it's difficult because the way that misinformation plays on fear makes it go viral compared to you know sensible scientific evidence-based advice and we need to change that we need to change how people get their information and how people balance the information that they get to understand how to I think we need to we need to improve science literacy to explain what evidence actually is um, so ultimately so we can facilitate informed decision making and I think that's something that's really come through in terms of we're about to now ask some questions that we got both through Parents United who are hosting mm -hmm. this event and through the COVID aid community as well. There's definitely yeah. like a kind of big range about that. So um, some of the first ones that we had were around the vaccine. Mm -hmm. um, so the first question here is I've heard people say this is an experimental vaccine and has been approved for emergency use. Is it safer to wait and see what the long term effects are? Okay, so two that's two things. So first of all, is has it been approved? And second, is, is long-term issues. How do we know that there's not going to be long-term issues? So um initially this was given uh, emergency approval. Um, but now lots of countries around the world, including the USA and the FDA, has given full approval to the vaccines that we're using. It's still under emergency use in the UK, but I'm not entirely I'm not entirely sure why that is. Um, how do we know it's safe? Well, if you'd asked me this question um, over a year ago, I would have said, yeah, we've got really good clinical trial data saying it's safe. Now we've not just got the clinical trials data from hundreds of thousands of people. We've actually given 10 billion doses worldwide. And when you understand how vaccines work and when side effects present, you'll know that vaccine side effects always present within a few weeks of having each dose. So the latest we've ever seen a vaccine side effect after each dose is eight weeks the vast majority will actually present within three weeks of each dose. Um, so that's number one. So actually we have given the vaccine long ago enough to see the side effects that we're gonna see. And because we've given it to 10 billion people, 10 billion doses, sorry, about half the world's population, if you bear in mind, some have had two doses, some have had three doses. Um, because we've given 10 billion doses, we've now given enough doses and to enough people to know even the rare, the extremely rare side effects. So actually we have the information that we need and we know we're not gonna, you know, sprout a second head two years down the line. That's just not going to happen because we we've we've had the time frame and then the and the amount of doses given to be able to understand that. So no, it's not experimental. The the reason it's referred to as experimental by some 
is because we do what's called uh, continuous monitoring once we approve a vaccine or a new medication for use. And the reason that's important is because we don't include certain groups in clinical trials. So, for example, we don't include pilocarta transplant patients. We don't include transplant patients in clinical trials. We give them the vaccine because once it's been proven safe and effective, which it has in clinical trials, we then want to protect them against COVID. But we also want to be able to continually monitor them to see what their level of protection is with the vaccine because we don't get that from the trial data. Um, and that's why the continuous monitoring is so important. Um, and we do that for all medications, all vaccines, not just these ones. The next question is, I've seen other online comments say they know more people who have died from having the vaccination than the virus itself, including sports people. Is this correct? No, it's not correct. Um, and I think as a rule of thumb, getting your information from social media is, is, the, is the worry there. Actually, what's really good is that we've had really huge, large scale studies done looking at people who've just had the vaccination, people who've just had COVID. This is right at the beginning when, we, when we've now kind of got to the situation where people have had both. Um, we're talking studies of, of 30 million people. And what we've seen is that um, every single rare serious side effects that we see in the vaccine which are thankfully rare are actually far far more common in COVID infection itself and often much more severe so myocarditis inflammation of the heart in all age groups including young children is actually more common with COVID infection than it is with COVID vaccination and when we see it in COVID infection it's mild always recovers we have not had any children or any one die from that whereas we have had adults have severe um, myocarditis and other heart complications with COVID infection, either resulting in death or in some cases requiring transplantation. On that note, actually, there's a question here that says, I've heard the vaccine causes heart problems such as myocarditis. This is making me unsure about vaccination for me and my family. Yeah, good question. And it's and again, because I think the thing to bear in mind is when we see stuff on social media, we we think, oh, OK, well, if this is true, then why, why would I have the vaccine? But the way to make a decision is not to say, well, I've seen this and therefore I'm worried. It's to say, what what are the risks with the vaccine and what are the risks with COVID? And where am I going to get that information from? And you want to get it from reliable sources that will give you accurate um numbers from each side and the way that we do that is by large-scale studies and by the continuous monitoring that I was that was just talking about and all of that data has shown that again myocarditis is much more common in COVID infection and often much more severe so for me um thankfully I don't have any underlying health conditions I'm relatively young it was a no-brainer to have the vaccination because my risks with all the things that we worry about is always more common with COVID infection and bear in mind that COVID infection doesn't just cause myocarditis, it causes heart, funny heart rhythms that can result in sudden death. Um, it can cause all sorts of other heart complications, lung problems, liver problems, all sorts of other organ issues. Whereas we know that vaccine side effects are very, very rare and they tend to be much um, fewer complications than we see with COVID infection itself. And we've just had a question from Glow uh, who says um, there are findings of thrombosis in people who have passed away due to the virus. Is there any considerations or extra protection put into the chemistry of the vaccine to counteract the threat of thrombosis? So very good question. So um, one of the studies that I was just talking about was uh, done on 29.1 million people where um, people were either in the vaccinated group or they'd had COVID. And um, in fact, every single type of clot that we know about um, are all 
uh, quite common in COVID infection, but one or two of them also happen in vaccination, but are still much more common in COVID infection. So um, clots as a whole, thrombosis as a whole, is much more common with COVID infection than it is with vaccination. Um, a, a really big study actually just out of Cardiff University with one of the um, uh, profs who is in our department um, published uh, explaining why we think this, this clots risk even exists with the AstraZeneca vaccine. And it's likely this is going to lead to um, a better understanding of why this is and hopefully um, to be able to tweak the vaccine to reduce or completely eliminate the risk of this uh, risk from being there. But I think, again, it's a balance of risk and benefits, isn't it? And the only reason we um, or that the government decided to not offer the AstraZeneca vaccine to younger age groups is because there were alternatives. Actually, even if there weren't alternatives, it would have still been much better and would have made much more sense to offer the vaccine because, again, all of those risks of clots are, again, much higher in COVID infection. In terms of next questions, then, um, some more around kind of vaccines. So um, how can the vaccine still be working if it was made for the first variants? And the follow-up is, well, we need new vaccines for every variant that pops up. Really good question. So this is based on the fact that with the flu, because it mutates at such a fast rate each year, we have to update our vaccines based on a strain that we see in places like Australia that we vaccinate for it here. So by the time it makes its way to us in winter, we have to give that 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 dose for that strain. Um, no, we don't have to do that with COVID um, as of yet from what we have seen so far. The reason for that is because the, the virus, the COVID virus doesn't mutate to the same degree that the flu virus does. Um, but each time we've seen a mutation, the way that we know that the vaccines work against it is by doing two different types of studies. One study is where we actually mix people's blood who've had the vaccine um, in with the virus in the lab to see if the antibodies that we form can actually hang on to the spike protein. Because the way that the antibodies work is they they latch onto the spike protein, meaning that it can't then enter our, then the actual virus can't enter our cells. Um, the spike protein that we produce as a result of the vaccine is not to be confused with the spike protein that we have in the virus. By itself, the spike protein is completely harmless, but as part of the whole virus, it just helps the virus enter ourselves and that's how we get ill. So there you may have heard rumors about spike protein, the vaccine doing rubbish to us. It, it, it cannot, it's not possible for it to cause us any harm. The other way that we check that the vaccine is effective is by populational, by populational data. And that's looking at hospitalization rates in people who've had vaccinations and boosters, for example. So what we know about Omicron is that, yeah, it can change the shape of the spike protein, but if we have enough antibodies, i.e. we boost our immunity by having the, the booster vaccine, we do produce enough antibodies to be able to reduce infection rates up with the Omicron significantly, but much more importantly, it actually boosts our protection against hospitalization, and that maintains for a good time afterwards. And then next question uh, around the effects as well. Um, I have seen comments online that the vaccine affects our genes. Is this true? No, um, no. Um, the very simply, if you, I'll just use my hand. <laughs> um, this is what. So our bodies, our body, and our organs are made up of lots of different types of cells. Um, but very broadly speaking, our cells look like this. And the middle is where the nucleus is, and the outside is what cytoplasm is. The nucleus is where our DNA is kept. The vaccine stays in the cytoplasm, does its job here, and then the contents are removed from the body very shortly after vaccine. It does not enter or come near our nucleus. It doesn't come into contact with our DNA, so it cannot change it. Is there, and this is something I've, I've heard other people ask and inquire about, is there evidence that vaccination reduces the chance of developing long COVID? 
Uh, and is there any evidence that vaccine, vaccination reduces symptoms for people who are living with long COVID? Yeah, really good question. So uh, we do have good evidence that the vaccines reduce long COVID. Um, the only reason I hesitate is because because we don't have a diagnose, we don't have a definition of long COVID. It's very difficult to say what the vaccines actually reduce. But more and more studies have been done looking at people who um, uh, have had vaccinations, have had COVID, have not had either. Um, to see what the rate of symptoms are for all the symptoms that we've seen on COVID. And what, we, what we've seen from all the different studies we've seen is that vaccines do reduce long COVID. Um, so even if you are somebody who has a breakthrough infection after vaccination, um, your chance of having long COVID is still lower than someone who's not vaccinated. Um, in terms of do the vaccines help people who've already developed long COVID? Well, that's a really good question because the, this data is anecdotal. What that means is that it, it, we haven't got large scale data to answer that question just yet, but the bits of information that we have from different small case studies and case series, so uh, published bits here and there, suggest that yes, they do. So um, very broadly speaking, it's a rule of thirds. For a third of people, their symptoms um, improve and then stay better. For a third of people, they improve, but then after a while, they come back. And for a third of people, the vaccines make no difference to their long COVID symptoms. There is currently a study going on, I believe, in Exeter University looking at giving repeated vaccination doses to people who've got long COVID to see if that has an impact on their symptoms. Um, we're still awaiting the results of that, but um, that's what I'm aware of. And I think the advice, uh, rightly, is that even if you've had COVID and you've got long COVID, to go ahead and get your vaccination. Um, but the uh, the advice is also to await um, if your symptoms to stabilise, so not to have a really bad peak of you know whatever your symptoms, shortness of breath, whatever, um, to have like a a, a a decent couple of days, and then you can go and have your vaccines as normal. We've had somebody ask a follow up in terms of which vaccines is it that. Uh, seem like they might reduce um, long COVID? Yeah, I, I don't know. And I don't think it matters. I, I think it's any, uh, from the data that I've seen, it's it's a mishmash. So I don't think it's any specific vaccine that's better than, than the other. I think the mm. reason, the reason we, the, the, the proposed mechanism by which we think this happened, um, that this is actually beneficial is that one of the proposed mechanisms for long COVID is that there is an inability to clear the virus from the body. And so you, people who have it are continuously trying to, expending a lot of energy trying to clear the virus from their body and are just not able to. Um, and what the vaccine does is it induces a robust enough immune um, response that you can clear the virus properly. Um, one of the other mechanisms is that because we know COVID causes clots, when we talk about clots, we talk about big clots that cause you know, PEs and strokes and things in COVID. Um, one of the proposed mechanisms for long COVID is that we also get microemboli, so smaller clots that cause end organ damage um, that we don't immediately see. And the thing about long COVID, I think people need to realize is that it's not, it, it's a bit of an odd one. You can have a very mild initial COVID infection and then weeks later develop long COVID symptoms hospitalized that's who develops long COVID actually about a third of people had very mild uh, uh, infection to begin with and then went on to develop long COVID um, in the long term sadly. And then in terms of um, this question around natural immunity versus vaccination and which lasts longer? Yeah good question so I'll explain why natural immunity isn't as robust and I think people often um, there, there are studies suggesting that natural immunity is as good it isn't 
Um, and the reason that's um, often confused is because when we develop, so I'll just go back to basics, use my hand again. This is the COVID virus. On top of the virus, it's lots of different projections that are proteins. One of these proteins is the spike protein. When we, um, it's actually the spike protein that, that um, helps the virus to enter our cells and cause its damage. So what we want to do is we want to produce antibodies against the spike protein, because when you produce antibodies against it, it locks onto the spike protein and then it, it'll just stay around our body, but, but it will not be able to enter our cells. And then our secondary immunity, so T cells, B cells and other specialist cells will then recognize the virus and then just gobble it up and get rid of it. But it's the antibody that prevents infection in the first place. When you have a vaccine, you only produce antibodies against the spike protein. So they are all neutralizing antibodies. But when you have natural infection, I say natural, when you have infection, um, you produce antibodies. A third of people produce no antibodies at all. Not sure why that is. Um, but those that do will produce antibodies against all the different proteins. And that means only a small proportion are actually neutralizing antibodies that we need to protect us. That's why um, infection doesn't always confer the same degree of immunity. Number one. Number two, we also know that even if you were to produce proper antibodies, you know, the right type of neutralizing antibodies, it doesn't last as long as vaccine-induced immunity. And we saw that particularly with the Omicron variant, where the people who are more likely to get COVID were those who were not vaccinated or who had had previous COVID because that previous infection did not confer the same protection as people who were vaccinated and then boosted. Um, but that's why vaccine-induced immunity is always better. The, the only thing better than vaccine-induced immunity is people who've had their vaccinations and then also had a COVID infection, because all you're doing is you're topping up your immune. I'm not saying go and catch COVID if you've had your vaccine. That's not what I'm saying at all. But if you do catch COVID after your vaccination, it does top up your immunity even more. I guess that kind of leads into we've got a few questions around boosters. Mm -hmm. And there's, there's two questions I think maybe are kind of close enough in a sense that's maybe worth asking both. So the uh, first is, if the vaccine works, why do we need top-up boosters? Mm -hmm. And then the second is, no other childhood vaccines require top-up vaccinations. Why does this one? Okay, the, the first question, why do we need boosters if the vaccine works? I'm going to flip that on its head and say, if the vaccine didn't work, we wouldn't be using it as boosters. Um, the reason we needed boosters is because Omicron changed the game. Um, and because unfortunately, so the, the ironic thing about these vaccines is they are some of the most effective vaccines that have ever been produced, ever. And actually, if we had vaccinated enough people right at the beginning when we we're dealing with the first original variant of COVID, we would have we would have eradicated the virus by now. But we didn't vaccinate enough people either because people were hesitant to take it up or because we didn't get it to the global market to um, give it to countries who are... Um, who are poorer than us and who have still haven't been able to access vaccines. And that in itself is an argument for vaccine um, inequity and in trying to address that. But the reason we need boosters is because over time, um, protection against infection, but not protection against severe disease will wane. And so the, the reason we need boosters is because we've not yet vaccinated enough people in the population to, to achieve something called herd immunity. And the reason herd immunity is really important is because 
that means when we achieve, when we vaccinate enough people in the population, the population develops immunity against the virus, not just the individuals who are vaccinated, because those who are vaccinated act as barriers to those who are not vaccinated. So if one or two people have the virus, we act as barriers to prevent the, the virus from spreading to other people and then having a, an, a, an epidemic, so an outbreak. The really good example of that is the measles epidemic in the USA. So in 1991, there was a measles epidemic in the USA where somebody from outside the US who was not vaccinated with measles um, came to the US and went to a music concert. I don't know what music concert, but I know it was a music concert. And that person, that individual spread measles to a few other individuals um, who they were standing around. Now measles is just as infective as um, I think the Delta variant, but probably, you know, so it's a very, very infective virus. But that person passed it to vaccinated individuals. So they had the virus, but weren't unwell with it, didn't become very ill. And it didn't actually become an epidemic. So it didn't, it didn't reach the stage where it, it spreads really, really fast and causes an outbreak until the virus infected someone who was not vaccinated. When the person who was non-vaccinated got the virus, that virus then spread really fast among both vaccinated and unvaccinated, meaning in 1991, everybody had to have a measles booster. So boosters are not just a reflection of the vaccine's ability to work against a virus, they're also a reflection of how much virus there is in the population and who else in the population is vaccinated. Why, why bother giving everybody a booster if the majority are vaccinated and you know they're not going to get ill from it? Because actually, even if you were to catch measles at that point, but you were vaccinated, your risk of having severe measles is very low because you've had your underlying vaccination and some immunity. Because you have to bring the virus into control as a population, because if you don't, it can mutate. If you don't, it can infect the most vulnerable, who even if they are vaccinated, will not derive the same protection. And if you don't, you're going to have to think about other measures to bring the virus under control. Otherwise, healthcare systems can become overwhelmed, which is what we've seen happen with COVID. So that's why boosters are important. And now with this virus, and we either give boosters or we go back to social measures of lockdowns and other things that are disruptive. So that's kind of the balance that we have to strike. Yeah, and like you said, it's certainly something that with rates rising in the moment is a very pertinent question to be asking. Um, another one um, along those lines, uh, I heard vaccine immunity wanes after three to four months with the third jab. So after that, are we back to square one? No, 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 not quite. So um, so vaccine produces two types of protection. One is protection against infection in the first place. And the second is protection against severe disease and hospitalization and death. The protection against hospitalization, death, severe disease actually maintains really well from the data that we've seen. So that's not to worry about. We are offering boosters for the clinically extremely vulnerable because even a slight drop in protection in severe disease for them is, is, a, is a big difference compared to the general healthy population. So um, that's a separate issue that I'm happy to cover, but I'm not going to uh, complicate uh, the question with. Um, protection against infection. So what we have from the data is, so, so immunology is really cool. Obviously, I think it's cool, but you don't have to think, you have to agree. Um, with vaccination, so each time you give a booster, you're not just boosting how many antibodies you produce and the B cells and T cells that you have that protect you against severe disease. You're also actually telling your immune system, this virus is still around and it's still mutating um, and it's still changing to, 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 to new variants. 
So what your immune system does actually, its ability to react to new variants improves each time it has a booster, even if it's a variant that it hasn't come across or that's not even around yet, okay? Not gonna bore you with how that is, how, but we just, we know that a really, really good study published in Nature, the best journal um, has basically broken that down. It's really, really great paper. And what we do with this particular booster is when we give the booster dose for this vaccine, we actually boost our antibodies, which prevents infection to a degree much higher than what we've seen the second um, vaccine. And even after some time, that, that number does come down, but it's still much higher than with the second dose anyway. So although we have waning immunity, it doesn't mean that the immunity is gone. It just means it's not as good as when you had it immediately after the vaccine. But the actual protection that you get maintains for a good long time. So your risk of infection is still significantly reduced after months after your booster. But much more importantly, your risk of severe disease just stays at the high level that it should. We had another question that was very much along similar lines. And this is somebody asking about the protection somebody has from this two vaccinations and a booster and how long it lasts for. The reason that they were asking for is they're concerned that their clinically vulnerable mum, age 73, won't get a booster at the same time as their dad, who isn't clinically vulnerable uh, and is age 76. Yeah, good question. So that's, that, that does fall into the clinically extremely vulnerable category. So I'm just going to address that very quickly. There are a small group of people in this country and across the world who are classed as clinically extremely vulnerable have an underlying condition that suppresses their immune system or because they're on medication that suppresses their immune system. For example, transplant patients who have to have immunosuppressants so they don't reject the transplant that they have. Those individuals are at, at incredibly increased risk of COVID without vaccination. What we see with vaccination is that we do, for the vast, vast majority, they do get very good protection from the vaccine, but it wanes more quickly than if someone um, doesn't have that immuno, has, has, has an, an immunocompetence, so, so a, a healthy immune system. So for those individuals, they have a completely different vaccination regime to the rest of us. And the reason for that is because they need more vaccines or more frequent vaccines to get the same level of protection. So the individual asking that question, totally, totally get where you're coming from. But in addition to following the vaccination schedule, both your mum and your, and your dad, there are other measures that you can put in place to reduce the risk of transmission. Um, so your mum will have a different schedule to your dad because she needs that different schedule to get the same protection that your dad will have got. And there are other measures like mask wearing, good ventilation. But we don't talk enough about good ventilation. Good ventilation is very, very good at reducing transmission of COVID. Um, having open windows regularly or continuously and then wrapping up warm with weather becoming nicer outside, hopefully in the next few months, that will be a lot easier. We'll see transmission rates reduce as a result, particularly in schools and other areas that we see high, ca high cases of COVID. The other thing you can do, if you can afford it, is buy an air filter. Um, any air filter that can filter a, a 0.3 micron size particle is fine. They're not that expensive and they do work really well. Um, happy to share um, a summary of, I mean, I'm not going to recommend an air filter because I'm, I'm not going to advertise for a company, but happy to share a summary of the requirements. You can have a look and see what you need. Um, we've got one in our house because, um, you know, I... My daughter, thankfully, is young and healthy, so not really at risk of severe COVID, but I don't want her to be off with nurse, you know, off nursery. For, so really, I, I'm trying to reduce the risk of us having transmission in the house. We're all vaccinated. We have an air filter, windows are open. If I get together with people, we do lateral flow tests. All of these things that you can do to reduce the risk of transmission will help.
Yeah, and I think that brings us on to some questions around children. Um, so the first of these is, um, what reassurance can you give on the safety of COVID vaccination for children aged 5 to 11? Yeah, really good question. So um, the UK has been an outlier in uh, offering the COVID vaccine to children later than other other um, countries around the world. The US, I think, was the first country or one of the first countries to offer it to this age group. And last I checked about a month ago, um, around 10 million doses had been given. So I'm sure it'll be much more now. And it was and, and, and because the clinical trials for this age group started a few months ago, we've now again had long enough to see those side effects that will present within a few weeks of having each dose. And we've given it to enough children to see what the rarer but more serious side effects are. And again, what we've seen is that the side effects that we see that are serious are thankfully even rarer in children than they have been in other age groups, um, still more common in COVID infection. Um, and so myocarditis, again, inflammation of the heart is thankfully incredibly rare in children. The rate is two per million for girls and four per million in boys all completely recover. Um, and when I say recover, they recover with you know, fluids and ibuprofen. Um, so it's not something that we hospitalize for. We, we we do admit into hospital to investigate, to to diagnose it. Then kids go home and then get better by themselves. So um, that's the reassurance. The data is there. The data is very reassuring. And, you know, I'm talking here as a doctor and scientist, but I'm, I'm first and foremost a mum. And my daughter, when she turns five in September, will be getting her probably on her birthday, actually, <laughs> will be getting her COVID vaccine because vaccines are always safer than the condition that we are protecting against, always. Yeah, and that, that leads uh, right on to the next question, which I've seen many people say a version of this before, and that's Omicron is mild and children don't suffer severe illness, only a cold. Why would I vaccinate my child? Yeah, good question. Um, Omicron, Omicron is milder because we vaccinated so many people, I think we need to realise that is the way that that's been portrayed in the media is actually very unhelpful. Omicron is, yes, less likely to cause an individual to end up in hospital, but a virus that's more infective will actually make more people ill overall because the way that that impacts hospitalisation is an exponential rise as opposed to a linear one. I'm not going to bore you about mathematical modelling, but the point is that actually the reason Omicron is mild, the reason we've gotten away with it is because we've vaccinated a decent size of our population and the most vulnerable. It is true that Omicron is milder, but actually we have seen, we've actually seen more hospitalizations in children with Omicron than we saw with Delta and more with Delta that we saw with the other um, variants of COVID. And that's been the case in the UK, in the US and other parts of the world. Number one, thankfully hospitalizations and death are, inc are incredibly rare in, in pediatric in kids. But they do happen and they do happen to healthy children. And, it, you know, it, 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 it beggars belief to me that we would deny a vaccine that can prevent that, even if it's stupidly rare as a as a possibility that can happen. And we know the vaccine works really well in preventing that. And the other thing that COVID does, again, very rare, is something called PIMS or MISC, depending on which part of the world you're from. And PIMS or MISC is a condition that um, is similar to a hyperinflammatory thing that we see with other viruses, um, but behaves slightly differently. So children will often have a mild COVID infection and will recover. And then about six weeks later, will develop abdominal pain, rash, temperature, fever, um, 
and and swollen eyes, swollen mouth, and will end up in hospital. And that is very severe. Again, thankfully, very, very rare, but very severe. Vaccinations reduce that by more than 90%. And then there's long COVID. We don't talk about long COVID enough, I think, for adults, but we certainly don't talk about it enough for children. There are currently an estimated 117,000 children, 16 and and younger, with long COVID in the UK. We know the vaccines reduce long COVID um, risk. We know that long COVID can, on the whole, be quite debilitating. I mean, if it's just tiredness you're dealing with, that's quite debilitating if you can't do your daily daily activities and just play and be a kid. But we've also seen the spectrum of long COVID where kids are losing weight and have to be NG fed. They have organ damage. Some, some are wheelchair bound. Some have had brain damage because of, so, you know, this is not a benign condition. And again, for me as a mum, although the risks are low with COVID, because the vaccine is safe, to me, it's it's a no-brainer. I will be vaccinating my child because although the risk is small, I've done my bit to protect her and reduce the risk of her developing any of those complications. Um, if and when, because it really is a matter of when she contracts COVID, because you know all measures are going to be lifted soon. So, for me, it's a vaccine or virus. It's always going to be vaccine. Yeah, another question around children, um, quite a specific one. Uh, is there a difference in the paediatric dosage for a booster? Um, if not, was the best opt or was the optimal time for a recommended booster for children? Iris got their second one in December and we're considering returning them to school. But I would like them to be boosted if there's any benefit at all prior to returning. Yeah, so good question. So um, the the booster is needed to um, give that really good protection against Omicron. So the two doses will will provide protection against severe disease, but it will not stop people catching Omicron. Um, but the protection against severe is only about two thirds to really boost that protection to not more than 90% against severe disease and to reduce the risk of infection significantly, you need the booster. In terms of timings um, and dosage, the pediatric dose for five to 11 year olds are a third of what the adult dose is. Um, and that's simply because kids have a more reactive immune system and need less of a message. That's essentially a vaccine is you're telling your immune system, this is something you need to be aware of. Go and get ready, go and get your defenses ready. Because they have a more reactive immune system, they need less of a dose to be able to get the same protection. Um, and in terms of the interval between doses, we say 12 weeks because there is a slightly teeny tiny induced risk of um, an increased risk of give, of causing myocarditis if you give it sooner. Um, it's it's not you know it's it's not a huge risk at all. And actually, when you consider the risk of myocarditis is small to begin with, it really is a tiny risk. But because we know about it, then it kind of makes sense to put that twelve week gap between um, each dose, each dose and COVID infection itself. So if you again had COVID in the meantime, you need to wait that twelve weeks to have your. Um, this is just for paediatric, by the way, not for adults. Adults can have it, whatever the recommendation is, which is about um, 28 days. And then we've got a final couple of questions around fertility and pregnancy. Uh, so the first of these, uh, does the vaccine affect fertility? Nope. No data to back up this claim, but unfortunately, like all misinformation, it went viral before the scientific community could go, what, what are you talking about? And actually, we've had loads of really good data, really good published studies, large sample sizes have completely disproven this person's claim vaccines cannot and do not impact fertility. Um, there is no plausible mechanism by which vaccines, any vaccines for these ones could impact fertility. So lots of really good data proving that they don't impact fertility at all. Um, COVID infection doesn't seem to impact fertility in women, but it does in men. Um, COVID infection increases the risk of erectile dysfunction in men, young and old, by a factor of at least six. 
So we're seeing issues with really young men. It's one of the long COVID symptoms that we're seeing. Um, so yeah, COVID can impact fertility, vaccines do not. Is the vaccine safe in pregnancy? Yeah, again, really good question. So um, how do we know it's safe in pregnancy? Well, some of the women in the clinical trials um, unintentionally went on to get pregnant and went on to have healthy babies with no complications. That was a small sample size. But since then, we've given the vaccine to around 200,000 women um, in the USA and other parts of the of the world. Um, and again, with continuous monitoring, multiple studies, we now know that it's safe for mum, it's safe for baby. The, the, the vaccine contents do not cross the placenta um, at all. Um, but the antibodies, so the protective uh, antibodies that mum makes to protect herself does cross the placenta. And we've just had a study published in the last week or so that has shown that the risk of um, hospitalisation for COVID for young babies is significantly lower in mums who had the vaccine versus mums who didn't. Um, and COVID, unfortunately, in pregnancy, doubles to triples the risk of stillbirth, uh, baby being born early, baby being born small for weight, needing NICU, neonatal ICU care, and um, new, and maternal mortality, so mums dying. So. Um, if you take anything away from today, it's if you're pregnant or know anybody who is, please plead with them to have the vaccine because the rate of um, people needing the highest level of care that we can offer in medicine, um, it's there's a disproportionate number of pregnant women who are unvaccinated needing that care um, just purely because of misinformation. They haven't had their vaccine and it's totally preventable. The vaccine's safe. It works really well. And yeah, finally, we've had, it's not a question, it's a comment um, from somebody who just says <clears throat> they found the discussion very helpful. Uh, the conversation around myocarditis has been really informative and better than any response I've had from my GP practice. Uh, thank you again. It's very reassuring as both my sons have had the vaccine. Um, so yeah. You're welcome. Thank you. So yeah, welcome. Th and I honestly wish I could, I mean, I, I'm I'm counting down the days until I can get my daughter vaccinated. She's starting school in September and I know cases in schools are very high. So just for my own peace of mind, I'd like for her to have the vaccine. Well, I know I've done my bit to protect her and then that's it really. So I'm glad you found it useful. And I am on social media. So if there's anything that you, any questions you want to ask, or if you again have people who are hesitant and want to talk to, um, you can just share my videos without having to engage in that dialogue, which can be quite difficult sometimes. But yeah, anything I can do, please do shout. Thanks so much to Benara for her time. You can find Team Halo online and on their social channels. And I hope you point people in the direction of them, as well as this podcast if they're after answers around COVID-19 vaccine concerns. If you haven't heard of us, COVIDAID is the UK's national charity dedicated to supporting all those significantly affected by the COVID-19 pandemic. We provide a range of supported services, advice and information, including hosting our COVID-19 support community, where we host courses and events. Please visit covidaidcharity.org. That is covidaidcharity.org and join our community at community.covidaidcharity.org. We'll be back soon with another episode, and until then, please take care.